0: Welcome. Um, so we have a three-part, this is part of a, a three-part piece on Polly Murray. Um, who, who here has, has heard of Polly Murray before this event? Mark Simmons' hand went shot right up, right? Right on. I can't remember who said this, but um, someone very distinguished said, Polly Murray should be one of the most famous people in American history. Um, she was that, um, should be, is not, right? Um, and is not known for the things, even that, that historians that specialize in the work that in, in her area, she's she's not known in that area, particularly in uh, Brown versus Board of Education, in the way that she should be. So a person um, that was would would have been, and I think was we, uh, lost to history, and is not, um, has become um, there's critical scholarship around her in the last five or ten years. Um, her own writing, she documented her life very well. Um, has been revisited. Her papers at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard are now um, regularly used in research and scholarship. So she's kind of come back. But she didn't go away for that long. She didn't die that long ago, um, known to people in this room. Um, So we're going to start with, I want to give you a little bit of a setting of who she is. The film is being screened this afternoon at four. Um, Julie Cohen has recently done a movie about her. Julie Cohen is part of a a group doing a series on women. Um, So the next one is on, uh, so there's one on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, Then there's uh, Polly Murray. The next one is uh, Julia Child. I can't wait for that one. Yeah, so a really fun series. Um, And kind of unpacking that these people that are very famous in public life um, had these Really, remarkably distinguished careers, um, both secretly and not. Um, for in Julia Child's case, um, before we know, before the thing we know them for. So, a really delightful series. So that's it. That's going to be it for today. And uh, you can watch that on Netflix on your own if, if watching it with us doesn't work out. And then next week at this forum, um, Julie Cohen's going to be up on the screen, and we're going to talk to her about making a film. So if you can save some of those questions um, for. Uh, next week, because um, that'll, that'll be really fun, I think, I'll be delightful, we'll do that here. And Pat Merchant is here, and I'll tell you why, so many of you in this room know Pat Merchant, um, and you know her from when she was here, um, yeah,
1: <laughs> My fan club.
0: yeah. Um, but Pat Merchant is a part of this story, and so here's how I want to introduce Polly Murray, very mindful that you're about to watch a whole, a whole film and then talk to a filmmaker who probably knows a lot more than I do. So let's start um, by talking about the ordination of women in the Episcopal Church, right? So you might remember this. In 2014, in July, there was an opinion piece in the Atlanta Journal Constitution um, about women, it's called um, um, Priests Among Other Women Leaders. The reason you might remember it is the Episcopal Church in that way doesn't make the paper very often, right? So Patricia Templeton, who's a, a priest of this diocese, many of you will know her, um, wrote an, uh, an opinion piece on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the irregular ordination of women priests in the Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. you got to love it. Irregular um, is exactly, I mean, that's fantastic. Who doesn't want to be irregular, right? So 40 years ago, she, this is what she writes, So this is um, 2014, July 25th, 2014. Forty years ago this summer, an event occurred that shook the Episcopal Church just as surely as the Watergate hearings going on at the same time shook the government. On July 29, 1974, at the Church of the Advocate in Philadelphia, 11 women were ordained Episcopal priests.
1: Irregular. (laughs) Irregular.
0: News of the ordinations was shocking. As a child and teenager growing up in the Episcopal Church in Atlanta, this is Reverend Templeton writing, it had never occurred to me to question why girls weren't acolytes. Ann Kramer was not an acolyte, right? Much less why women weren't priests. (laughs) Me neither. But that question had occurred to many other people. How could a church that believes men and women are both created in God's image justify treating women as less than equal? The church struggled with that question for a long time. And in 1970, The general convention, the triennial triennial meeting of the church, this is when um, lay people, clergy and bishops uh, gather to decide the policy of our church, approved the ordination of women to the deaconate, 1970. Before that, women had been deaconesses, and that wasn't an ordination, that was being set apart, which is um, something I talked about a couple of weeks, That you're set apart as a deaconess. One black woman in the entire time of that um, was made a deaconess, and we talked about her. Um, so basically, this opens the path to women's ordination because women are now being ordained deacons, 1970. But they only approved to the diaconate, not to the priesthood, which frankly, theologically, ecclesiologically does not work. It makes no sense at all. To be, to have, to be of a kind of person allowed to be ordained to one thing and not another just doesn't work. It makes zero sense, but that's what happened. And so because it failed, because the the ordination to the priesthood failed, so they voted again in 1973, which is when many people I knew were sure it would pass. People were preparing, they were going to seminary, absolutely sure it would pass, and it failed in 1973. And that's when people left the church around that. Um, It was church dividing, um, people's vocations were being argued on the floor of convention in the same way that when we argue marriage or race, we're talking about people's bodies and lives. And so the response to that was the ordinations of the 11 women in Philadelphia. So they had already—they were deacons, they had gone through the process and expected to be ordained priests after the 73 convention, and they weren't. So there's a lot to that story, I'm not gonna tell you all of it, we'll have another thing to talk about that. Um, but here's what I wanted to read, the reason I wanted to read you this piece. This is the, her next paragraph. The Reverend Pat Merchant, now an Atlanta priest, read the gospel at the service as a newly ordained deacon. She remembers the liturgy included the bishop asking if anyone knew any reason why it should not proceed. In response, a group of male clergy came forward and read a statement. You can no more make these bodies of women priests than you can turn stones into bread, they said. You could have heard a pin drop in the place Pat remembered. The Reverend Paul Washington, rector of Church of the Advocate, says this, said this at the time, our actions today are untimely, but the dilemma is what is one to do when the democratic process, the political dynamics, and the legal guidelines are out of step with the moral imperative which says, now is the time. May we praise the Lord for those in this day who act in obedience to God. Paul Washington was a black man who was the rector of Church of the Advocate in Philadelphia. I hope you can hear that everyone that participated did so at extraordinary risk and across the lines of division that the world would tell us we must um, live separated by. So so much has changed um, since then, right? In 1976, the church finally gave its approval um, for the ordination of women. Pat Merchant was ordained in Washington DC on January 2nd, 1977. The first day it was legal was January 1st, 1977, and Pat can tell you why she chose January 2nd. Um, It's a good story. So so the Philadelphia 11 belong with the likes of Susan B. Anthony and Rosa Parks. They are of that goodly company of women through history who have seen that in overcoming the restrictions which circumscribed their own lives, they brought release to countless others. The human family is the beneficiary. So I've started here to put into perspective one of the many reasons that we remember particular saints in the life of the church. We do it because they are moved by a sense of what is right, what is of God, what is true, that is often in opposition to the way things were in their time. And it was terrifying, which Pat can tell you about. It was scary, frightening, and a huge personal risk. So an example of the opposite of that, for me, being a faithful priest in the church that allows me to be a priest is nice, and you know I hope has some integrity, but it doesn't make a saint in this context, right? I get to do a job. I have the privilege of doing a job because people like Pat came through and made it possible for bodies like mine to be perceived, as, as um, Horace said in the sermon earlier, um, for bodies like ours to be perceived as bodies that can do this work. But it meant putting their own bodies on the line in their time. You're gonna wonder why she's sitting there quietly, but I'm gonna talk about Polly Murray and then she's gonna answer all the questions and talk to us about it. So there's a wonderful notion in our church that all of us are saints, right? We're all, all the Christians. We live our Christian lives to the best of our ability and join that great company of saints in our death Yes, and the church holds a very particular honored place for those who could see the right at great personal cost in their time, and in this Black History Month, um, we remember that this month is chock full of those saints. So you can't contain it in 30 days, and so we will do our best to hold up some models of the faith in our tradition that you and I too might find courage to be kingdom bearers with their help and to support other bearers of the kingdom when it might seem to be too much or too terrifying for us. So today we get to talk about Polly Murray. Anna Pauline Murray was born in Baltimore. I'm gonna go back. I just want you to see that face because isn't that delightful? You can see the joy of Jesus on that face. Let me go back and give you a, that is her family. Right. She was born in 1910 in Baltimore. She was the fourth of six children. You can see the circle. That's her, I think. Her mother, Agnes, was a nurse. Her father, Will, was a college educated high school teacher. 1910. So think about that. Those are people her grandparents and um, her grandparents remembered slavery and had been enslaved. So these are the, the children of, her parents are the children of enslaved people. When she was three, her mother died suddenly, and her father suffered from severe depression and did so in the rest of the course of his life, and so split up his children among relatives, and Polly Murray was sent to live in Durham, North Carolina, where the house that she grew up in is now a national monument. You can visit it. A wonderful program is run out of that. And she grew up with her Aunt Pauline, appropriately. She was named for her. Her Aunt Pauline was a teacher and a very important influence on her life, and she enrolled her to school, took her to church, um, and encouraged her to embrace self-expression. Now you can imagine, this would have been a bit alternative at the time. Um, the, the wisdom out there was do the best you can, get the most education you can in a world that's trying to kill you, right? Be as conformed as you can, particularly frankly to whiteness so that you might succeed. And that's not what happened to Polly Murray. Aunt Pauline was, um, was a free thinker. She had two, um, what were they called, matron aunts is what they were called, two matron aunts that took care of, of her. So she lived under Jim Crow, right? Her family lived in constant fear of the Ku Klux Klan. Her father was brutally murdered by a white guard while in residence in a mental hospital during an episode of depression. She got race. There was nothing soft about that exposure in her life. It was brutal. But her understanding of race was further informed, and she insisted on this in her writings, by her mixed heritage. She refused to deny any part of her racial heritage. Controversial at the time, controversial today, right? Definitely in the course of her life. So several of Polly Murray's ancestors, and you can see it in the images, were the children born out of sexual violence between white slave owners and enslaved black women. Um, and she, because she grew up in North Carolina, she didn't grow up in Baltimore, didn't grow up in New York, um, grew up around those families, those stories were told, and she knew those histories, right? But the way she described her family was as a mini United Nations with varying shades of skin color. That was a very particular choice on her part. Life in segregated Durham presented the world as white versus black, and she defied that division. She insisted that she was white and black. Complicated, right? You can imagine that most of the world didn't care. Um, She was really good at school. She was brilliant, taught herself to read, Um, finished school really early, I think at 15. Her family tried to get her to go to an HBCU, she probably should have, but she didn't because she didn't believe in segregation. Isn't that interesting? In a time when segregation was the law, right? Um, she didn't believe in it, and so tried to find another way. So um, and Aunt Pauline, of course, was very supportive, and supportive in this um, I wonder if we all have people like this in our lives in a really impractical way that I think aunties and grandparents and uncles know how to do, hard for parents to do sometimes. So she wanted to apply to her dream school, which was Columbia. I mean, that's, Columbia was a school for men at the time, right? And so she encouraged her to do it, so she did. She applied to Columbia. And of course, she was not accepted because Columbia did not accept women until the 70s. Um, and she couldn't afford Barnard, so she didn't go to Barnard. Um, but this began the, pro- the series of her, through her life of um, episodes that she would sort of illustrate segregation and then contest it or illustrate discrimination and then contest it, kind of born with a a legal mind in many ways. So she enrolled in Hunter College, um, which at the time, which is now the premier city college um, in New York City, it's the the super scholar uh, city college, at the time was the racially integrated women's college that offered free tuition, Heard of that, right? Free tuition for community college, that's what that was. She rented a room at the Harlem Y and took odd jobs, which was the rest of her life, she did things like that, and saved money by skipping meals, and I mean, just, she was broke, had no money, and went to school, and was there at the time of the parts of the Harlem Renaissance, so her W.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, A. Philip Randolph, um, Mary McLeod Bethune, so was raised among these great scholars and artists, and that's what she looked like. So throughout all of this, she was involved in a personal struggle and Julie Cohen's film says more about this. I'll say just a little. Um, At that point in her life, she was often wearing male clothing, had rejected the name Anna, which is her first name, and was testing different names. So interestingly, tried Paul, Pete, Dude, none of those stuck. The different time, right? Polly is what she ended up with. Um, Cut her hair very short and started to wear pants. All this is, you know, remember she was born in 1910. Right, um, And hitchhiked around the country, rode boxcars, this is during the Depression, wore a Boy Scout uniform for a while and passed as a boy. Um, back in the day, um, anticipated the great bathroom scandals of our day, um, used men, men, men's bathrooms and passed in doing that. Um, and writes actually very tragically, and as this is recorded in her um, papers, that she really couldn't figure out what was going on with her and trusted the medical establishment, asked doctors to help her figure out what was happening, confused, talk, talked, talked about feeling confused and upset by her gender expression and what that should be, and trusted herself enough to take that very seriously and then talk to people about it and record that, and then was very confused about her attraction to women, which she perceived as being being part of being male. So it's um, very different language than we would use today, and you'll see more about that in the film. But again, to imagine living that life and then still assuming, having this going on in your mind, that you should be at the center of political life and legal life and the life of the church requires actually quite a brilliant imagination because our institutions tell us even now, right, that so many of us, that you cannot be in them if you're not conformed to them. So just for your sense of the brilliance of her own imagination and sense of herself. So despite all of that happening to her, she graduates from college, she graduates from many places, but she starts out with a degree from Hunter in 1933, and then ends up working in WPA programs and federal relief programs because it is the height of the Depression. And probably because she graduates right after the Depression, during the New Deal, she ends up living her whole life um, in a really hodgepodge kind of way. She doesn't really have a career, she does all kinds of things. She writes poems, publishes poems, articles, Um, writes for the paper, um, and make literally writes poems to make money. And I think that made about as much money then as it does now, right? (laughs) So in 1938, she applies to the University of North Carolina to study sociology. They reject her with a letter stating, members of your race are not admitted. It's not like she couldn't read, she knew that. Her, um, I think, great-grandfather... I think on both sides, but definitely on one side, was one of the landholding families that gave the land for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and in perpetuity had, has, has a place of honor in that institution, um, and she noted that in her application. <laughs> yeah, she, she was amazing, right? But in the course of that, in, in her outrage that she's not admitted, though there's no reason to believe she should have been admitted, she writes a letter to Eleanor Roosevelt, as one does, right? <laughs> The outrage of it, right she's not not and she keeps doing she applies to other schools where she 's not admitted because she 's a woman, and then other schools because she um, is black, and so she writes to Eleanor Roosevelt about it. Roosevelt writes back doesn 't do anything about it, but begins a lifelong correspondence with Polly Murray, which is sh- shocking to me, so it was a correspondent of the first lady and and the president um, who she berates um, for his lack of vision on racial justice in the programs created um, at that time um, to, um, during the Depression and then um, after the war. So in 1941, and this is one of the ways that Polly Murray's life has intersected mine, um, she applied to Howard's Law School um, because, uh, because she, well, she applies to Howard's Law School, I'll just say it that way, she applies to Howard's Law School. So when I was a new priest at St. Mark's in the Bowery where Polly Murray served on the vestry for a short time, before she, as the first woman, before she left in outrage at how um, ineffective she found the rest of the vestry. She just couldn't stand them, wrote an angry letter and left. Um, there, um, There's a polymory file, it's a little red file. It has letters that she's written on that onion skin scanned paper. But then she would, you, and you could feel the anger in her typing, <coughs> and all the X's out. And then she would have more to say and then write more on the bottom, the things she had left out of the thing. So there's some of her letters, and there's a, the, a memorial uh, bulletin for... Um, Rini Barlow, and you'll hear about that in the movie. Um, And a a man came to visit me to ask if we could bury his mother, bury bury her ashes on our site. And I was working out how to say no, because we didn't know him or the family, and there's not a lot of room for that in Manhattan. And he looked at me and said, do you know who Polly Murray is? I said, yes, I do know who Polly Murray is. And there's a Polly Murray file, actually, in my file cabinet. He said, well, my mother was the house mother at Howard of one of the women's dorms. Um, and Pauli Murray, when she was admitted to the law school, the dean of the law school, was a courageous man who really developed the argument and the community that developed the argument for Brown, for the Brown decision, said, um, this woman has applied and we have to admit her because she's a great student, but um, if you don't want to house her, we don't have to admit her if she has nowhere to live and you know she she has a questionable lifestyle. So, so some scholars will say that she was very quiet about, about this part of her life. The truth is she didn't write about it. She was not quiet about it because clearly the dean of the law school knew about it, enough to try to make a controversy so that she couldn't go. So she goes to the law school in this time when Brown is being formulated, and she is enormously controversial in her time there, but really does come up with a thesis for that argument in her time there. She formulated an idea called Jane Crow. If you think about what we're studying these days, right? This is 1941, right? She comes out mid-40s to describe the double discrimination that she faced as a black woman, as a black person who was a woman, right? So, kind of is is engaging the idea of intersectionality in the law in the 40s. Um, Just brilliant, right? We think, Um, and at Howard. Um, she led student protests and helped to form the Congress of Racial Equality, so CORE, and focused her studies on civil rights and writes her thesis on how lo- on laws that exclude people based on race. We're in the 40s. She lives to ni- into the 1980s. Right? So I'm going to, and there's a film. So in 1940, she challenges segregation on an interstate bus in St. Pe- Petersburg, Virginia, where she's traveling with a friend to go to North Carolina to take her friend to visit. Um, to visit her family, Um, and so they refuse refuse not to sit together on the bus, so they get thrown off the bus, they get arrested, Um, so that's, as you know, interstate travel becomes central to the civil rights movement. She becomes one of the first um, at that time to do that. She is admitted to the bar in California in 1945, where she became a deputy attorney general. Um, 1945, like working on race in California. By 1947, she's back in New York and publishes her first book, States Laws on Race and Color. In it, she explains the complexities of legal segregation. Her book becomes one of Thurgood Marshall's references when arguing Brown versus the Board of Education before the Supreme Court. She she was at Howard with Thurgood Marshall and was a better student than Thurgood Marshall. From 1956 to 60, she was an associate attorney at what is now called Paul Weiss, but back then was Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. That's in New York. And in her final year with the firm, was admitted to practice before the United States Supreme Court. So she was a remarkable lawyer. Um, She's written many books. Let me get here. Yeah, so this picture is because she was so distinguished in her time that this was the photo used in Mademoiselle magazine when she received one of those, like, best women of the year kinds of awards. Um, You can still order this. Like, she was a, I I guess I'm trying to make the point that she was famous while she was alive, but this is from the 40s, right? So in the 60s and 70s, Dr. Murray, again, she was born in 1910, so she's now approaching her own 50s, 60s, 70s served on the Civil and Political Rights Committee of the President's Commission on the Status of Women, right, and is a member of the National Board of the ACLU, and a charter member, a founding member, of the National Organization for Women. right. Just remarkable. She um, wrote to A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, and Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 because they failed to include a single woman speaker at the March on Washington. Right? I mean, yeah. Just, I, don't, I mean, I can't even tell you all the things, right? Um, in 1965, she becomes the first black person to graduate with a doctorate in judicial science from Yale. Um, that same year, that's the same year that she co wrote Jane Crow and the Law Sex Discrimination and Title VII, um, in which she described how racial segregation and gender segregation were more similar um, than many understood. So, In the course of all this, and you'll see this in the film, um, she becomes good friends with a woman named Rini Barlow. Um, and we can all speculate in any way we want about that. It's, there's not a lot documented. Um, they met going to St. Bart's on their lunch hour from the firm, and then they went to St. Mark's, because Rini Barlow was on the vestry at St. Mark's as well, and St. George's, and that is the funeral bulletin that was in the folder that I was given when I came to St. Mark's. It's the Polly Murray funeral, the Pauli Murray file, and it doesn't say why it's in there. So these great, beautiful, historical moments. The funeral bulletin is there with a cutout of the, um, of of Renee Barlow's obituary um, and some notes that Polly Murray took in the bulletin, which is like one of the most tender remembrance things I've ever seen. Um, So when Rene dies in 73, um, they say that Polly Murray was devastated um, and she goes to seminary right around then. And this picture, she was such a famous person that when she went to seminary, and it was so controversial that women were about to be ordained, that the New York Times did an article about her going to seminary. So this image was in the Times, um, an extended article about her life, um, many of the things that I've told you, and the fact that she has decided at this point to leave the law, to go to seminary to become an Episcopal priest. And you can find her sermons, um, her poems, and other writing um, available in archives and in her own published work. And as a priest, she served as um, in, at St. Stephen Incarnation and at Church of the Atonement, both in Washington, D.C., Holy Nativity in Baltimore and Holy Cross in Pittsburgh, her first Eucharist was celebrated in the church in North Carolina, where one of her grandmothers had been baptized as a slave enslaved person. Just a profound life that ran this course of history, right, um, from 19, 1910 to 1985. And her final, her autobiography, um, Song in a Weary Throat, an American Pilgrimage, was published in 19. 19- 87. Here's a quote from her, I speak for my race and my people, the human race and just people. When I was a, a young person coming through and trying to figure out how to be a priest, I had this image on my desk, literally on my desktop as a picture and on the desktop of my computer into my late 30s. Um, and I, and I was, as I was learning about her, I didn't know exactly who she was, but she, had, she kept kind of coming up in my life Um, So I started to read her books, Proud Shoes was written in the 50s, tells the story of her life, her family's life, their history, Um, but this is the image that I love of her. Um, She had basically lived her whole life before she became a priest, um, and then brought all of that to the church for a beautiful, beautiful um, last chapter. So I have Pat Merchant sitting here because we forget that it was terrifying to cross the barriers that people of that generation crossed. And there are gen- barriers like that being crossed now, and it is terrifying. And it happened in real people's bodies. And the women of that generation in the church were treated very, very badly by the church across the board. Pauli Murray wasn't paid to do any of these jobs. right? There, there were nice priests sometimes that, that gave you a place to be at an altar because it was enormously um, controversial um, well, into the, well into the 80s and 90s, and in some places remain so today. Um, so one, I want us to know that this wasn't that long ago. Um, and two, there are great heroes in our history that have every, every issue that we think um, is brand new to us um, has been fought and wrestled with um, by heroic heroic people um, not that long ago, and some, some for many, many generations. So Pat, I just talked a long time. Um, <laughs> It's okay. You you met Polly Murray.
1: Yeah, I met her, but I didn't. I can't say I knew or I didn't. Tell me know. about
0: that time, though, about that time in the life of the church.
1: Well, it was very. Um, there was a lot of conflict constantly, and you couldn't um, if you were in that process, you couldn't escape it. Um, so after the Philadelphia, I, after I read the the gospel at the Philadelphia ordinations, I went home, and with a group of about another hundred people, I guess, in the United States from all the dioceses, we formed an organization called the Coalition for the Ordination of Women in the Priesthood. We raised money, and then at the next general convention, in 76, we knew every deputy, a deputy is someone who goes to general convention that represents the Diocese of Atlanta, and there are four lay deputies and four clergy, and so if in order to get a yes vote it has to be two, three and one. Not two, but three. Yeah. So we went through the whole church and we had everybody's name, and if we knew anybody who knew anybody, we'd say, Are they weak? <laughs> <laughs> Can we get them to change? <laughs> and you know, the vote passed by one vote in the clergy order, yeah. two in the lay. So that's yeah. close. You I counted every vote. People have no idea how close it was. Yeah. And so um and then we were told because the people that lost were so upset that we shouldn't show that we were joyous. You know, um, all that kind of protection of men. Um, and so I just want to say a couple things. One is that from the time I went to the seminary in 1971, it was a slow revelation to me. I was very naive. I was 24 years old That um, that it was really a huge thing. I didn't get it, really. And I think mm-hmm. my youth protected me. You mm-hmm. know how that is? Yeah. And I think that I just went in there saying, you know, I love Jesus, which I do. I still do. And I I just thought, I, you know, I just really want to be a parish minister. That's my love. That was my love from the beginning. It's still my love. And so I want to be a parish ministry. And I didn't ever see myself as a politician, but obviously I am. Um, <laughs> so I... Um, I, I decided to work with this group, and um, we tried in 73 to get it passed, and, and Winnie just said it didn't, and then in 76 it did. But one of the things I wanted to say is that apart from wanting to be a parish ministry, I cannot remember a time in the last, I've been ordained 44 years to the priesthood, but longer to the diaconate. I had to wait three years to be a priest, I was ordained a deacon in 74. And a priest in '77, the day after it was legal. So, oh, and the day after it was legal with reason, I picked that day. It's the first day of January, which is when the canon law said you could begin ordaining women. It was the feast of the circumcision. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at my bishop, whom I love, and he was so kind to me, and I said. I said, Bishop Hall, I can't do that. (laughs) I said, after all we've been through? Are you kidding? You know, celebrate the penis day. Uh, You know, I was like, really? He was like, well, he didn't know what to say. So I said, no, no, two, two, two. So now the... The church of the, I mean, the first Sunday in January, the first day in January is the Feast of the Holy Family. You'll yeah. go look in your prayer book, you'll see it.
0: Thank God, yeah. So
1: they, <laughs> they quickly clean that up. Yeah. So anyway, it was a wonderful ordination. I mean, the people that I loved and served had... had Totally supported me across the board, so I was very lucky about that. But the other thing I wanted to say is one, only one other story. But one other thing I want to say is that I think I've spent my whole life being afraid, and you, you know that's the part that people don't see. I've learned very well to cover it, and, and people say, "I don't understand why you don't look nervous." Oh yeah, <laughs> that's part of my act. You know, I I figured that out. Um, and so when people say, "Well, it must have been wonderful," yeah, parts of it wonderful. <clears throat> but parts of it were terrorizing. I mean, I would have diarrhea. I would well, you know, I'm a little too basic for Anne, but um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I just had all the physical ailments you would have, and then I identified with Polly that she had them too. Um, and so, you know, that's why she died young, because she should have lived longer than that. She was, yeah, so, she was so sick she, all the time. And she was sick all the time. She didn't eat right. I mean, so I really identified with the physical part of it, because I have every autoimmune disease you can have right now. I mean, hopefully you don't see it. But anyway, any rate, but I do, and it's not funny, and it's not pleasant. But it was worth it. I mean, I I don't for one minute think it wasn't worth it. But you realize about halfway through that you're not going to ever get unstressed. Mm. Um, So that one, the other thing, a very important story, I think, is that when I got to Virginia Seminary in 1971, um, there was one other woman who was a student there. She was from Arkansas. Her name was Peggy Bossmeyer. And I love Peggy. She had a very Arkansas accent. And um, But she didn't want to say she was going to be ordained. So I was the only person at that point that said, I want to be ordained, I want to be a priest. So then what happened was, in the fall, they had already planned a meeting of women throughout the church after the 1970s convention and women came from all over the country who had worked in uh you know the different offices at the fifteen, and all over the place all lay women obviously we're going to get you a better microphone oh, thank you That thank might be you, easier sweetie, to i'm hold. sorry i didn't cooperate with this. so you're fine yeah. um so um anyway what happened was there must have been about 50 women in the room and carter came who was always a lightning rod in every organization or wherever she is and sue hyatt and a lot of women who were academics from the northeast I was the only one who there. Two of us were only two women there from Virginia Seminary. Hmm. So what happened at that meeting was we formed the Episcopal uh, Women's Caucus to to um, what's the word to politicize it and to get it get ordination of women passed. And but what happened was in the afternoon we were talking about how to form ourselves as a new a new organization. And Henry Ryder, who was the person who presented the uh, Ordination of women at the 1970 ordination. He was a, an outrageously funny man. He was a lawyer from Princeton and a priest, and he had just such a heart for. He loved women. <laughs> you know, he he loved women in all the right ways. And he um he he got up and he said, "Well, I have a." report from the, well, he, he also from Arkansas, I have a report from the House of Bishops, and we all went, really? Well, they were meeting exactly the same time we were. I didn't know that. I didn't know anything then. So they, um, they and he said, and they have had, come back with another report from the Commission on the Ministry About Women, and they have decided, and then he reads this piece, it goes, it's from um, Kilmer Myers, who was the Bishop of Northern uh, California at the time, and he said, now I want, he, Kilmer Myers said, now we all know that the reason that women are we're reviewing why women cannot be priests is that we know that in the sexual moments of our lives women are never take never take decisive motions towards men. You can hear that I mean those women fell out of their chairs. They were just laughing, so aren't I? I didn't say that exactly right, but you get my my drift, right? But you know I mean I'm just thinking well, where have they been? You know, we were, I mean, but I had never, and the point is, I had never heard women laugh at men in public, never. That's how young I was. I mean, I had heard my mother make every joke she could about my father, but I had never heard a group of women just go uproariously yell, and that was a great gift of grace to me.
0: Well, and part of where the Episcopal Church got stuck in that um, mire is that we are science-oriented enough that no one was willing to argue at that time that women are made of a different material than men, which is where the the distinction comes from in the Western Church, because that doesn't make any sense, right? So you can't. Do, so you're trying to find some reason. So it just actually gets uglier and uglier. What the what the what happened in the House of Bishops um, during that period was really ugly. So, but the, one of the reasons I wanted Pat to be here is I think I think we forget how um, how difficult it is to make change, frankly, and the cost of change. So. Um,
1: and it's the same yeah. dynamic as race, although not nearly as painful, I'm sure. But when people know that you're afraid, they do things to make you more afraid, which it is the whole yeah. way we keep people um, in bound, in, um, bound up. So, and the great, thank you, darling, (laughs) the great thing about the um, Philadelphia Ordinations was a great celebration, was that the preacher was Dr. Charles Lawrence, who Mm -hmm. at the time was an African-American man, who at the time was the vice president of the House of Deputies. And after he gave that sermon, the bishops of the church um, refused to recognize the women who were ordained there, and so he he left the church. So it was really quite an amazing time. It's one of the great moments in our church
0: of like profound solidarity between um uh black black male leaders of the church, um, because they were they were ordained and or had, had office um and women. Um Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And actually that's another Charles Lawrence's sermon on that day is one for the books. Um it's worth it's worth like reading every year. It's I, really... we all just
1: want to go right on preaching, but yeah. It was great, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, if y'all have some questions or comments, there's a microphone over there if you do. Um, we can talk about either Polly Murray or about change. Um, and again, the film is at 4. And uh, we're going to talk to Julie Cohen, the filmmaker, next week. And if you have questions for that in advance, if you can send them to me, we can. Um, she can get ready. That'd be great. You
1: know, we, we didn't have telephones then. You know? We didn't have um, internet. So everything was done in person, which in my idea now is that it was actually better because we got to know each other. But in the beginning, there were only about 15 women ordained at the same time to priesthood. And then there were actually more and more and more. And so in the beginning, we all knew each other. We knew the bishops. I knew every bishop who voted against the ordination and every bishop who didn't. And of course, I finally grew out of that, and they all died, I hope. But but it was just an extraordinary... um, Time and also very um, interesting to see the white men who stood up, uh, who were bishops who took, who were um, later uh, penalized for their their work. The one other story I wanted to tell you was that on the I left the general convention after this passed. I knew that it had passed and that the bishops had passed it too. And so then I went home and um, I heard on it was either N.P. I don't think even NPR was, it, Well, yeah, it was in 73, so, uh, no, anyway, it doesn't matter. I went home, and I found out that the bishops had met and decided to punish the women yeah. who were ordained in Philadelphia, and I went to the phone, and I called the Western Union, and I sent a telegram to my bishop saying that if you do not accept these women as priests, I will never be ordained in this church. And he read it on the floor of the bishops' house of bishops, and they changed it. So I'm very proud of that telegram. And I also was very sorry that my mother was terrified for me. kept mm-hmm. saying, "Don't do it, don't do it." I said, "Mother, I have to do it. I mean, we've gone this far."
0: And that your bishop was bishop of Washington at the
1: time? No, it was Bishop Hall in Virginia. I was in Virginia. Virginia, Virginia yeah. That was where Allison Cheek was. Yep. So I knew her very well. I called myself her bridesmaid. I used to follow her around when she. She said things that scared me. So, <laughs> And how did you
0: come to Atlanta?
1: Dan Matthews Sr. hired me. I'd been fired um, from St. Paul's in Richmond, mm-hmm. which is the spiritual home, Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis, whom, because I was an Army brat, I never knew who they were.
0: <laughs> oh, wow, yeah.
1: And that wasn't good there. <laughs> and they would talk about them, you know, as Jesus, and then it was... Um, it was Jesus first and then maybe the Creator and the Spirit, but then after that it was um, not Jefferson Davis, but Robert E. Lee, and then Jefferson Davis. So,
0: so you didn't last there?
1: No. Yeah.
0: And, so, and so Dan Matthews brought you here?
1: Yeah. After I'd been unemployed for three years.
0: Were there other women priests when you came in this time? To, to Atlanta or here? Atlanta.
1: Yeah, there were four. And that was in 1984, July. What? Were. I am. Oh, you yeah. think I was? Yeah. I was radical.
0: Oh. oh, Anne. Yeah. Good. I'm so glad. <laughs>
1: But I think, I think I knew by the time I got here that, you know, I wasn't, somebody said to me, well, how's your career going? I just laughed. I thought, what? Career? I don't think I have one of those. Well, and, you know, again, it's really, I mean, this
0: is, it's good for us to note, right, that, that it, was, it was a very radical move on Dan's part to bring a woman to St. Luke's, no matter how cool St. Luke's thought it was. That, those were extraordinarily controversial things, and it meant you didn't get invited to meetings, you were excluded from things. You, there might be a place you wanted to run for bishop. That wasn't going to happen. Um, so it was a, it, it's at a cost, and it's a cost to the institution. You know there are people here that found it outrageous that there was a woman on the
1: altar. Right. So Winnie, you need to know that Dan had been approached by a group of about 10 women and who had lobbied for a year or so for yep. a woman priest on the staff. So it wasn't just, it took yep. lay people to make it happen. He did, oh, Ray even stirred the boat as much if not more. And when I was here, I used to love to answer the phone downstairs and say, this is St. Luke's Church. And they go, oh, I need to talk, blah, blah, blah. So then, and that that was when Ray was right next to his office, right next to mine. And so one day this person called in the middle of summer when Dan was somewhere else and and said, well, we need a a priest uh, to come to our funeral in Highlands of course first that just all oh, that's all it took to get my whoosh, go straight up and so I said oh that's good and he said well we don't want the black man or the woman <laughs> I said well you're really out of luck I don't know what to say <laughs> those people we're silent I tell you I thought are you there are you there (laughs) and so I finally said well I'm the woman you can have me but you but he's a much better preacher than I am Mm -hmm. oh I love Dr. Parkins I loved him we had the best time together if we were together you better get out of the way (laughs) raise the ruckus but he's he's a precious wonderful man but he he went through hell at Virginia Seminary he oh, went there in the '60s, and you know yeah. he really went through hell. I wish he's here; he'd tell you.
0: <laughs> when my, my ordaining bishop in Los Angeles, who's still alive? Well, actually, if was my, that where you ordained? Yeah, I'm from Oh, Los yeah. I thought you were in Texas. From Texas, wow. I would not have been ordained in Texas. That not would not have. I was happened. wondering that yesterday. How did that happen? It didn't. It did not happen, right? Um, I was reading, uh, Chet Talton ordained me a deacon, and he um, he said when he went to the Church Divinity School of the Pacific, so CDSP. Seminary. He'd grown up in Oakland that people wouldn't touch him. Yeah, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. So w- w- the society is where the society is. The church is is rarely even even as far along as society. And it takes, you know, it 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 takes intention to make change. Um, so just as we go forward, right? Um, there are going to be some things that are hurt and that hurt me that I don't. You know, that are hard for me or that that bring up fear and. Um, We have stories like this to remind us that that's the path, right? Jesus doesn't say, fear not, because we're not afraid. Jesus says, fear not, because the right thing is often terrifying.
1: That was the um, sermon that was preached at my ordination. Fear not. It was after January 2nd. It was the lessons from Christmas, and it was, fear not, do not be afraid. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Pat,
0: we're so glad you're here. We hope to see you around a lot. So, please do watch the film if you haven't seen it yet. Um, And then next week, please do join us for the conversation with Julie. And if you can send questions in advance, please do. And we can incorporate them. And if you can't, bring them. And um, we'll have a great conversation next week. Thanks, everyone.